You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. This episode is about different ways to do the same thing and the lessons we can learn in surprising places about how to run a farm well. From donuts to cars, people have been pretty good at finding different ways to make the same things. In the farm and food universe, one of the biggest divides in different ways to do the same thing is raising livestock on pasture versus in a feedlot. What might be surprising is that this debate is not unique to agriculture. The pasture versus feedlot debate is actually just the farm version of a debate that's been going on in the manufacturing world for decades. It's a really big, complicated debate that was born in car manufacturing, but it's so fundamental to how humans make things that it impacts everything from cars to how we raise livestock, all the way down to something really simple like running a donut shop. The trailer version of this episode, we're going to talk about how that thing we call factory farming, it's mostly about feedlots, and in farming they're called confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, are such a monumentally bad idea that everything we know about the right way to run a factory tells us, don't do that, raise them outside on grass. Let me repeat. Factory farms are so bad, it's not just that they're not good farms, they're not even good factories. Factory farming or CAFOs are such a dysfunctional way to make something that if you brought in someone who'd made their career in running factories and said, we want to raise cattle the same way you do it in a really efficient factory, they'd tell you, great, do it outside, grazing grass. So something I want to address before we begin. Most of the conversation around raising livestock on pasture instead of feedlots or in cages has centered on animal welfare, on the quality of the milk and the meat and the eggs, uh, health and lifestyle for the farmer, and environmental impacts. Those are all really important arguments, and they're how I got interested in raising livestock on pasture in the first place. But what I found once I started looking as an agriculture and food professional is that there are also a lot of other really important dimensions to grass-fed versus pasture that haven't gotten that same attention. So I'm going to focus on those underserved dimensions, and that's not because health and well-being aren't important. It's because those conversations are already happening, and I just don't have anything unique to add here that hasn't already been said. Final disclosure, my mind has been warped by a lifetime in the world of fruits and vegetables, where we can go all the way from really intense, high-yield, high-maintenance greenhouse or vertical farm production inside a building, all the way to really sprawling, kind of laissez-faire, white acreage crops like corn on the cob and sweet potatoes. So to us in horticulture, it's kind of all the same. This is going to result in me doing things like saying manufacturing, when really I just mean making something. And that might be growing it in a greenhouse or out in a field or just making something inside an actual factory or workshop or growing animals. So, of course, the first question is, obviously, if factory farming is so ineffective, why do we do it? And that is exactly what we should be asking. To get to that answer, we're going to have to get all up in the nuts and bolts of how to make things and how to make a lot of them. And the easiest way to talk about that, to start with, is with a tale of three donut shops. So making donuts is really simple. You make the dough, you put it in that donut shape, you fry it, and you put on toppings. And yet there are at least three radically different ways of doing it. Dunkin' Donuts has one way, Krispy Kreme has another, and then there's Duck Donuts. Check the links if you'd like to see videos. Dunkin' Donuts is kind of the classic model. They mix the dough, they either cut it out by hand, or the dough mixer has a little spout that bloops them out and into the fryer they go. Workers use tools to scoop them out of the fryer, put them on racks to cool, and then they frost and top them in individual batches. The key here is that Dunkin' Donuts makes them once a day, very early in the morning, and makes the whole day's worth at once. 
Krispy Kreme is famous for their hot now sign. Instead of one big batch in the morning, they put out multiple batches throughout the day. And when they've just finished a batch, they light up the sign so everybody driving by knows that they've got fresh, hot, sticky donuts. If you look at videos of how they make their donuts, it's quite elaborate. To me, it looks kind of overbuilt, kind of like a Rube Goldberg approach to making donuts. But the Krispy Kreme approach was your best shot at getting a hot, fresh donut at any other time than 5 a.m. until Duck Donuts came along. Duck Donuts is a small chain based in North Carolina and Virginia, and what's different about them is that unlike Dunkin' and Krispy Kreme, they don't do batches. Every Duck Donuts store has one very small automated line that's constantly making donuts all day, about one or two dozen per minute, which is about as fast as they can sell them. So what that means is Duck Donuts are always fresh and hot. And you can order them exactly how you want them, since they top them as you order them, instead of hoping, like, at 3 p.m. they still have lemon. There's a lot to love about this approach in general. Even though there's automation, Duck Donut stores still have about the same number of workers as a standard donut shop, because it takes a lot of people to take the orders and custom top the donuts. The machine is just doing repetitive tasks with the splatter hot oil so that people don't have to. And workers are able to spend their time focusing on the people coming in and running a good shop. And most importantly, for the purposes of our podcast, those donuts are always fresh. If we go into the world of manufacturing, they actually have names for these different approaches for making donuts. Dunkin' and Krispy Kreme both use what's called a batch system. Dunkin' makes one per day and Krispy Kreme makes a couple, but they're still doing batches. On the other hand, Duck Donuts uses what they call flow production, when you're making a small amount all the time. The thing about batch production, when you make things in batches, you can't use it all right away. Dunkin' sit for 12 to maybe 24 hours. They don't go bad, but they definitely get cold and maybe a little stale. Krispy Kremes don't wait around for as long, but you can still only get them hot and fresh a couple times a day. In manufacturing, if you make a thing and then it waits around for a while before it gets used, that's called being in a queue. And when you make things in batches, since you can't use it all at once, you have a bunch, you've also actually got built-in waiting times. So that's called a batch and queue approach to making things. Meanwhile, the flow approach at Duck Donuts is always making a little bit at a time. If there's a really slow period, they can just turn the line off. That way you never get cold donuts sitting around hoping that someone will buy them. And if somebody walks in, you turn it back on, and by the time they finish making their order, fresh donuts are ready. It's just a really unassuming piece of quiet baked goods genius. So we're all familiar with how back in the day, uh, people making things in the artisan fashion, piece by piece, um, that's how things were made. Then Henry Ford invented mass production, and we've used mass production ever since. That is the conventional wisdom. What we don't talk about, unless you're a manufacturing nerd, is how Toyota invented something much better and much different. Henry Ford invented making cars the way Dunkin' and Krispy Kreme make donuts. Toyota invented making cars the way Duck Donuts makes donuts. The short version of that story. After World War II, American manufacturers had very little competition. Every other industrialized country in the world had been bombed to pieces, but America's post-war economic boom and the Marshall Plan in Europe meant the demand for manufactured goods was high. Everything we made could be sold, even if it wasn't very good. A lot of people were buying new cars every four or five years, and the emphasis was on flashiness and style above basic performance characteristics like mileage, safety, or even reliability. It was a great time to be an American business, and U.S. manufacturers responded by leaning into what they understood about economies of scale. They made bigger and bigger batches. At that same time, Toyota had to completely rebuild itself in a Japan shattered by war. While Japan's economy was recovering slowly, domestic demand in that country for cars was slow compared to their U.S. counterparts, and people wanted low-key, reliable vehicles that they could keep for a long time. Big batches were not going to work for Toyota. 
So Toyota learned how to make cars by flow rather than by batch. Compared to making donuts, making cars is very complicated. You have to bring together all the parts that make up the chassis, engine, transmission, brake assembly, steering columns, seats, body panels, and more, all in the right place, in the right order. This huge, complex supply chain is part of why auto manufacturing has been considered so important for national economies. It's the most complicated object that most of us will ever own. And enough of us will own one, compared to, say, boats or airplanes, that the volume of business is substantial and has a big impact on national economies. But Toyota learned how to do it, in spite of everything. They made efficient, durable cars by flow method instead of by batch like their U.S. counterparts. Making cars by flow is much, much trickier than doing it by batch. Management has to be a lot more proactive in making sure that supply chains are ready and solid, that their demand predictions are accurate, that labor relations are good, and investing in maintenance so that equipment doesn't break and cause downtime. But the proactive approach of Toyota's leadership allowed them to make individual cars more cheaply than Americans are doing it by batch, customize them more easily, and like dope donuts, they made their stuff at about the same pace that people bought it. These cars weren't huge blockbusters like Cadillacs and Chevrolets, but they had a fan base and they did what they needed to do. And then the 70s hit. Between stagflation and the oil crisis, all of a sudden, Americans didn't want boat-shaped Buicks. They wanted simple, reliable cars that wouldn't suck down a paycheck's worth of fuel or need expensive repairs. Toyota found their demand surging. But what didn't surge was American car companies' response. Because of their big batch strategy, they still had huge inventory lots full of land yachts long after people stopped buying them. And not only that, but decades of good times paralyzed these companies. Management was bloated with unnecessary layers of highly paid white-collar workers. These companies had never developed the precision needed to make cars that were high mileage and reliable because no one had ever asked them to. The decades of good times had fostered a corporate culture that rewarded people who were good at conformity and navigating good old boy networks, not people who were good at making cars. American car executives didn't firm up their supply chains or make accurate sales predictions or secure good labor relations or maintain their equipment to minimize downtime, not even in response to crisis. And it wasn't because they didn't want to. It was because after a generation of getting away with bad habits, American business leaders simply didn't know how. American industry was stuck in a batch production mentality and didn't have the tools to pull off flow production. When I say there's been a long-standing debate on whether batch or flow is better, there's actually really no contest about which one performs better. The debate is really more there are businesses stuck in the batch and queue model who can't get out, and so they insist that flow isn't really possible up until the day their business dies. The Japanese miracle of the 80s was in fact mostly Toyota. I still remember breathless reports on TV news about how the Japanese were eating us alive because they worked harder than us and they slept at their desks. In retrospect, knowing what I know now, that's a very American way to look at the situation. It couldn't be because of anything we were doing wrong. It was just because that someone else was working harder. We look back now on that post-war boom as glory days of American excellence, but I suspect the only thing that was really having a glory age back then was mediocrity. When the rest of the world finally recovered enough to compete again, it struck us like a blunt force trauma, and American manufacturing has never recovered. What does this have to do with feedlots? Quite a bit. The same post-war lifestyle and economic boom that shaped our industry decisions also influenced our agriculture decisions. So a lot of folks believe that economies of scale in food and farming are a bad thing. I don't actually believe that. Economies of scale mean that food is as accessible as possible, and that's important. What I do believe is bad is that we scaled up in a way that's actually really unique to the post-war United States. We just made bigger and bigger batches. And the place where that shows up most loud and clear is in CAFOs. 
So again, CAFO stands for Confined Animal Feeding Operation. That can mean feedlots, uh, multi-level caged chickens, farrowing crates for hogs, stall dairies, and all that. Uh, or as most people in the food movement know them, factory farms. And for the purposes of this podcast, we're mostly going to focus on grass-fed beef. Um, but it does apply to most of these other uh, livestock species as well. CAFOs are the ultimate in batch production, but not of the animals. CAFOs are all about batch production of food and then batch production and handling of poop. So another quick jump out for a second. Uh, anytime we make something, uh, or in food and agriculture, anytime we raise something, we're talking about cycles. For example, the donut cycle takes us from raw wheat to flour to dough to fryer to frosting and eating. And when we think about the livestock rearing cycle, usually we think about the individual animal's life cycle. Animal is born, animal grows, animal becomes food. And that is a cycle in livestock rearing. But the one that's actually most of the nuts and bolts in livestock is the cycle of we grow their food, they eat the food, they poop out the food, we deal with the poop cycle. I don't want to strip away an animal's individuality or anything, uh, but when we are talking about livestock rearing, economically speaking, we are talking about turning land and labor into meat. And ecologically speaking, we're talking about turning plants into poop and a little bit of meat. So that's kind of the framework that we're going to be working with here. So to feed the animals in a CAFO, you need a lot of corn and soybeans. You plant a batch of corn or soybeans in the spring, and once they've grown out a little bit, you pretty much leave them alone all summer and most of the fall. That's a cue. Your harvest date is kind of flexible because they mostly dry down in the field on their own. That's also a cue. And then they're harvested as a batch and delivered to whatever silo they will be stored in, again, as a batch. They sit in queue in that silo until someone's ready to grind and mix them up and do animal feed. And then they queue some more until you haul that batch into a barn and the animal eats it. And then the animal poops it out, at which point you have a batch of poop to haul back out of that barn. Usually it goes into a lagoon where it waits in queue some more until it's in a good place, uh, until it's a good time to spread it on a batch of land or on a piece of land. That's batch and queue production to a T. And just like 1970s American auto manufacturing, it is horrendously wasteful. It's not easy. In fact, it's a lot of work hauling that stuff around and managing those inventories. But it is simple. It's really easy to tell someone else how to do it by cookbook instructions. The alternative is raising animals on pasture. Instead of humans going through several steps to make food and then haul it from the land to the animals, then a couple more steps to haul that poop back to the land and spread it out, the animals do that work themselves. There's no hauling, so it's way less work. You could, in fact, say that it's easier, but it is not simple. So if you're going to raise a cow on grass all the way to finish, for example, she needs to gain at least two pounds a day for the entire finishing phase, which is at least 90 days and more like 120. She can't have any days where she does not gain at least two pounds. That means that every single day for 120 days, you have to give all your herd of cows that you're trying to finish off uh, two or three brand new fresh pieces of pasture that are prepped with tall, really dense, high nutrition grass. You can't let that grass get too old before the cows eat it either, because once it starts to set seed, the nutritional value goes way down. That grass has an expiration date. The marketing for grass-fed cattle is, is really lovely and pastoral and picturesque, but the reality for the grower is a lot more like you're a really tight inventory manager. Just bam, 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 growing out and laying out fresh pieces of grass like clockwork. We're really fortunate here in North Carolina in that there's some kind of grass growing here year-round, but it's obviously different kinds in different seasons. So that's another thing to keep stock of. As you move through the seasons, different pieces of land will produce differently. So you have to cultivate your land to produce in sync with what the cows are going to need. So we've got tight inventory, tight forecasting, continuous flow production of grass, really proactive management. What does that sound like? 
if you're doing pasture right, you are running your farm like Toyota. You are not running it like an American car company. Running things like Toyota just really tends to not be how we think here. We have a very batch-oriented mindset in the United States. In spite of all that, we do have a lot of farmers raising pasture livestock here in the U.S., and they deserve a lot of respect for breaking with tradition and doing something to make their own lives, their livestock's lives, and their product and their environment better. But most U.S. farmers don't do that. There are a lot of rationales out there as to why. Uh, corn and soybeans are subsidized and we can't compete. That is a supply chain excuse in addition to not really being true. Toyota has also had those problems and they fixed them. Uh, there aren't any slaughterhouses near me. That's also a supply chain issue, uh, but Toyota didn't let nobody's taking care of my downstream supply chain for me stop them either. I have to have an off-farm job to pay the bills so I can't be there all day to switch the cows from pasture to pasture. You know, every part-time entrepreneur who wants to go full-time has to figure out some way to make the switch from day job to full-time entrepreneur. Farmers really aren't special there. Everyone has to figure that out. Why do I belabor this point? Why am I comparing Toyota, a huge multinational auto manufacturer, to family farms? And there are two answers to that. For one thing, I think it's very important that we understand what farmers are. Sharecropping's over. America's family farms aren't labor, they are management. Farmers are business owners. And I know that when I meet with a farmer, they expect to be treated with the respect that's due to a business owner. And that's fair because that's what they are. And in return, I expect them to earn that as business owners as well. For the second thing, I also do this because Toyota wasn't always a huge multinational auto manufacturer. After World War II, they were a small family company that actually made looms, not cars. Their country had been destroyed. And they had every excuse in the world to not go out and do something excellent. But their leadership at the time just looked around them and they said, no excuses. Somebody has to do this. Someone has to rebuild our country and we're going to do it. They just built on the attitude piece by piece over decades. And that's how they became who they are today. So over time, Toyota's way of doing things has been distilled into what they call the lean production method. It's a way to make a lot of things quickly and inexpensively, uh, efficiently. So in that way, it's very similar to traditional mass production. But Lean does it without the pitfalls that have plagued mass production. Customization is doable, quality is much better, and it's so much more respectful to workers and if you're a farm to the animals that you're raising. The downside is that it requires much more for management. Management just has to have its head in the game. There's no way around it with Lean. Now, you'd expect that people running a company knowing what they're doing to be the norm and to be expected. But if there's anything that I've picked up in the last several years of working in agriculture industry, it's really not. And we can dig into that in future episodes. Right now, I just want to focus on the good news. There's a lean, clean, respectful way to make everything, whether it's cars, raw agricultural products, or donuts. That's real. Hundreds of thousands of people are out there doing it right now, every day, including big publicly traded global companies like Toyota and Costco. Being big or being owned by shareholders doesn't mean you have to cut corners. That's actually not an excuse. The reason that most companies aren't there is it's not economic and it's not financial and it's not any other, you know, external real world obstacle. It's just because of mediocre workplace culture. That's it. And that means that we can fix it. We can build workplaces with better culture and we can do it right. Totally within our power. So if you like what you've heard today, go on ahead and look into lean production. There's a lot of material out there, websites, books, just a lot of information about how it's done and what it means. There's a lot more about it than you can fit into a single podcast episode, but it's such good stuff and totally encourage anyone who's interested uh, in good business and good economics and just good ways of doing things to go and check that out.
And now that we've been talking about donuts, I really want a donut. So that's today's Farm to Tabor, uh, where good beef, good cars, and good donuts are all kind of made the same way. Join us next time for bees and why the much-rumored end of food because of bee problems or bee-pocalypse is mostly buzz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space and to Lauren Harris for audio production. 